hate is loud. It uses all its breath and then some to shout its selfish causes and to spew its vile venom. It's obsessed with division and distress. With its gain and its success at another one's expense, hate is loud. But love is louder. It is patient, it is kind, it is gentle, but it is strong. But it's a different kind of sound. It doesn't shout or raise its voice. It's love's whisper that is loud. A whisper like a song or like the rushing of the wind. It reverberates and resonates, it amplifies within. Love is louder. So this morning, uh, we are going to take what we started last week, and we are turning a bit of a corner with it. So I told you we were going to do that last week. If you were here for the message last week, uh, then you'll, you'll be able to follow very quickly. And if you were not, I hope you'll go back and check that out after this morning. But last week, we began talking about how we can be just like Jesus. This morning, we're going to begin a look at how Jesus was just like us. And what does that mean? And why is that important? And how does that, what difference does that make in our lives? It's actually what the He Gets Us campaign is all about. I don't know if you've seen it or not. The campaign made a huge splash when it aired two commercials during the Super Bowl this year. But it's also been seen on TV screens and billboards and race cars uh, since this national launch last year in 2022. At a minimum, it's designed to go three years. And the idea is to reflect what John tells us right out of the gate uh, in his gospel. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And when you drop down to verse 14, you'll you'll see that uh, John writes this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love the way the version or the message version uh, says it. It says, uh, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And, And I don't know about you, But this is the part of Jesus that um, I struggle to remember. Um, I have no trouble remembering that that he is God, right, that that he's fully God. But but it's the part where he's fully human that actually slips past me most often. So I have, if you're ever in my office, you'll notice there are two pictures I have hanging there of Jesus. One's in a carpentry shop and the other is of him as a carpenter working with wood. Those are there to remind me. Uh, that not only is he fully God, but he's also fully human. And this reminder of his humanity keeps showing up in Scripture. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, we read this, uh, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. And then in chapter 4, we read why. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In other words, he gets us, right? Uh, and I want to make sure that all of us are incredibly clear on this, because when we're talking about this, I want to make sure you get this, it's in the notes in the Version Bible app. Uh, and so if you've got that, go ahead and open up our notes there. And if this is your first time with us, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. Thanks for joining us here in the room. Thanks for joining us online. But what I want to make sure that you get as we begin to look at this is that Jesus is who gets us. 
And this, and I know that's not a surprise if you've been paying attention to the commercials, but it's this campaign, this He Gets Us campaign is not aimed at the church. We already know that He gets us, right? It's aimed at the world because we live in a culture that just doesn't know much about Jesus, and they don't have a positive view of the church. So how do you reach a world like that? How do we let people know who He is and why they should turn and follow him as we have. So what we want to do is take some of the ads and go a little bit deeper with what the Bible says, which is that, uh, actually is how the campaign is set up. They present an idea in our culture, and then the church is to take that idea and show how Jesus' divinity uh, correlates with that. So that's what we're going to do. But today we start with the idea of if he gets us, who is he? And we know it's Jesus. I just said that, right? But the question becomes, who is Jesus? And why does that matter? Jesus actually asked that question at a turning point in his ministry. And so he asked his followers uh, one, one, uh, at some point, and he has this come to Jesus moment with them or a come to me moment, if you will. Uh, Jesus asked his followers an important question one day, Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, this region of Caesarea Philippi is about 120 miles from Jerusalem, and the, uh, this area of Palestine was a hotbed for all kinds of religious trends. Caesarea Philippi was to religion what Bucky's is to shopping. <laughs> if you've ever been to Bucky's, I mean, seriously, uh, every conceivable variety was there in one place. Most of the gods of Baal had temples there or altars there. The Greek mythology god Pan had an altar there. Uh, Herod had erected a temple to worship Caesar. It was this spiritual smorgasbord for people of that day. I just want to make sure you catch the significance of the location of this spot where Jesus asked this question, because he didn't just happen to be there and ask the question. He actually takes his followers to this place and then asks them this question. He takes them to a place where all kinds of opinions about which God, which God we should be worshiping was. And then he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, uh, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And I just want you to stop for a moment and look at that list. I mean, John the Baptist, is, he's in the New Testament, but he's actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. When you read about him in the Bible, he is continually asked, are you the Messiah? And he keeps telling them that he's not, but he's here to prepare the way for the one who was to come. He's incredibly popular with the people. Elijah, great stories. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells of two people who never died. Elijah is one of them. He just disappears one day in a chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire. Some people think, Jesus, that you are Elijah. Come back. Jeremiah, very admirable. Listen, nobody on the list is bad. They're all heroes. And for the last two years, people have been following Jesus, and they respect Jesus, and they admire Jesus, and they think he's a heck of a teacher. Run an opinion poll today. Listen, don't we do the same thing in our culture? We prop Jesus up along a lot of other religious, spiritual ideas. It's not Baal or, or some Greek mythology figure, but the Bible gets placed on the shelf right next to the Koran or the Book of Mormon or crystals, or positive thoughts, or some other religious ideas. Jesus is just one religious option in our world, equal option in our world today. But here's the thing. When Jesus asks this question, he doesn't ask it because he has an inferiority complex. So please don't read this and go, Jesus must have been feeling down. 
guys, come on. Tell me again what people think of me. Tell, remind me, who do people say? That's not what he's doing. He doesn't ask for them. He asked for, or he didn't ask for himself. He asked for us. And so he asked this second question. And actually, this, this second question is the one he's wanting to ask. The first question gives force to the second one. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And the NIV correctly translate that, putting the emphasis on the word you, Uh, by repeating it twice. This is what's really important. When we stand before God, it's not going to matter what your friend said about who Jesus is. It's not going to matter what your spouse said about who Jesus is or your parents or who, what I said about who Jesus is. What's going to matter when you stand before Jesus is what you said about who he is. And Jesus is in essence saying to his followers, enough about public opinion. What about you? And this, 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 this is the life question. Your answer to this question has greater consequences uh, than all other answers to all other questions that you will be asked in your life. And there are some big questions that you will be asked in your life. Uh, huge implications. Will you go to college? What will you do for a living? How much debt are you willing to incur? Who will you marry? Will you marry? Where will you live? Will you have children? How many children do you think you want to have? This question Jesus asks is bigger Because depending on how you answer it, it will drive every other answer to every other question you are ever asked. And so Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And I want you to notice the way he answers. He says, you're the son of the living God. See, Jesus is right there in this place with them. Uh, Every direction they look, all they see are dead idols all around them. And Peter looks back. He sees that, and he looks back at Jesus, and he says, you are the son of the living God. And so we understand exactly who gets us. I want to make sure if you're new here to MCC, you understand who we are. We believe that Jesus is the son of God, not one of many choices, not one of many paths. He's the only one who's going to get you there, the son of God. I also want you to notice how Jesus asked, who do people say that? Do you see how he refers to himself? the son of man is. Who do the people say that the son of man is? It's his favorite designation for himself. It's used 80 times in the New Testament. 79 of those times, Jesus is referring to himself. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. They will see the son of man coming in the clouds. The son of man must suffer many things. Now that phrase, son of man, can sound like a pretty humble, you know, title to us. Boy, he's not throwing his deity around. He's just saying he's the son of man. I sure appreciate that about Jesus. But you have to understand the Old Testament reference that Jesus is making. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, there's this description of the son of man. So the, the prophet Daniel prophesies and he says, he's coming in the clouds of heaven. To him was given was given dominion and glory and sovereign power that all peoples, all nations, and men of every language should worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's all written. All of that is a a written description of who the Son of Man is. So every time Jesus would say to his disciples or to any of the crowds that he was the Son of Man, what he's saying is, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. So I want to make this as clear as possible as we get started in this because Jesus is the king who gets us. And we need to be hit by the significance of that. So while he gets us, we're going to be looking at that over the next few weeks, 
how he calls us to live in our culture today with all of those issues. So he's going to be talking about all of these things. And by the way, the campaign, the He Gets His campaign goes after every hot button going on in our culture right now. Make no mistake about who he is. Peter picked up on that. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On this rock that Jesus is the Messiah, on this rock that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that will be the foundation of this church that will start. I don't know if you've ever noticed when people are baptized here at MCC, there's something we have them repeat, right? We have them say... I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't know if you knew where we ever got that. We didn't just make that up. Uh, We actually stole that right out of the Bible. Um, This is the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the New Testament has an equivalent of the word from the Old Testament Messiah, which meant the anointed one or the king. In the Old Testament, when God appointed a king, when he chose a king, that king was called the anointed one of God. And the people of Israel have been waiting a long time a long time, not just for a king, but they've been waiting a long time for the king of God. So when you make this confession that Jesus is the Christ, that, by the way, sometimes we say Jesus Christ and it gets confused as kind of a last name. It's not Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the Christ. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are acknowledging him as our king and we are putting our faith in what he did for us at the cross. See, that's, that's the turning point. Because Jesus is saying, I'm not, I'm not really interested in people's respect. I'm not really interested in just getting their admiration. I want their full surrender. It's not just about respecting a king. You don't just respect a king. You surrender to a king. And people seem to respect Jesus. So I put this in the notes because I want to make sure you got this. It's a dangerous thing to respect Jesus without surrendering to him. Again, for the last couple of years, all kinds of people are following Jesus. They respect him. They admire him. They think he is a great teacher. It's still happening in the world today. Sadly, it's still happening in the church today. We admire him. We respect him. But there will be those who walk into a house of worship have never surrendered and have no intention of surrendering. And what's dangerous is you feel pretty good about who Jesus is, but respecting him doesn't heal your heart. And admiring him doesn't change your life. And I wonder if there's some churches this weekend, maybe even MCC, where folks haven't drifted backward into this. And at one point, listen, at one point you did surrender to Jesus. And I'm not saying you're a scoundrel or anything like that. You merely, however, at this point... And you would have to determine this, but pretty much it's just a matter of admiration and respect. And we have to be careful because in our culture today, there's a growing teaching. It's called progressive Christianity. And the difference is, again, here at MCC, we believe that Jesus is the divine son of God who died for our sins and from whom we receive forgiveness and we worship him as God. But progressive Christians believe that Jesus isn't so much the divine son of God as he is just a moral example for us to follow, which is partly true, by the way, because we do want to follow his example. But progressive Christians make Jesus' main point, that's really all he is. He's just a good example for us to follow. And here's how you can tell. Here's how you know if you're more of an attender and an admirer than you are living a surrendered life. 
Is there any evidence at school or at work or at home of surrender? Again, not saying that you're a dirty, stinking, rotten, lousy, awful person. You may think very highly of Jesus, but you've drifted back to being a respecter as opposed to surrendering to him. And so on your notes, I put this. I want to make sure you had it. You never find evidence of perfection in a disciple of Jesus. Never. That's not what we're looking for. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what we're talking about. But what you do find is evidence of surrender. And every day we re-surrender our lives to God. And so you have to ask yourself, is there evidence of surrender to Jesus in my life in the way I live at home or in the way I go to school or at work? or as a parent, or as a child, or in my finances, or you fill in the blank. Is there, is, is there something that says I'm surrendered to Jesus in the way I handle these things? You know, maybe you've heard of C.S. Lewis. He was an Oxford medieval historian and an atheist who would become a believer and would become an amazing Christian author. Some say the greatest Christian author outside of those in the Bible. One of the things he said that people have grabbed hold of is what we call the great trilemma, and you don't get to say trilemma very often, so every time you get the chance to say trilemma, especially in a room like this, you say trilemma because you just don't get to say trilemma very often. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said there's really only three options to who Jesus is. He wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I accept Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. I just don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. What kind of things did Jesus say? He said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God. I can forgive sins. I and the Father are one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Again, not one of many, not just a good one. I'm it. I'm the only way you're ever going to get to the Father. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. So here's the only other options, by the way, and this is Lewis writing again. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, which is, of course, the third option, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He never intended to. Now it seems, this is again still Lewis. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And so Jesus looks at us. This morning, the same way he looked at his followers on that day, and he asked the same question of you and me, not who does the world say that I am, because again, when we stand before God, that, that's not going to matter. What he's asking is, who do you say that I am? Do you respect me? Do you admire me? Or have you surrendered to me? Have you surrendered your life to me? don't want respect and admiration. I want total surrender of everything that you are, will be, have. All of it bows its knee to me. Jesus came to be the king, 
your king and my king. And I want to make sure you catch all that because, again, in the notes, it's a big deal to know who gets us because when Jesus is my king, it changes everything. Not just some things, not just a few things. It changes everything. So let's jump back to where we began, Hebrews 4. It's because Jesus understands the pressures that we face today. He understands the temptations we face today. Listen, he, he's tired of the division that we experience too. <laughs> he made space for everyone. He loves the people that we hate. And he wants justice too. And he knows that we need to be more childlike. So when he is my king, it changes the kind of husband that I am. And when he is my king, it changes the kind of father that I am. And it changes me as a neighbor. And it changes me the way I do business, and it changes the way I do school, and it changes the way I spend money and the way I get out of bed in the morning, and it changes how I spend my time. Surrendering to Jesus as king changes me. And to be clear, my king is out to feed the hungry. My king is out to console the brokenhearted, and he's out to befriend the lonely and comfort the grieving. My king is out to rescue the exploited and rescue the hurting. But most of all, my king is out to redeem the lost. And if I'm surrendered to Jesus, I will be about redeeming the lost as well. So do you respect him, admire him, or are you surrendered to him? The first two feel pretty good, and they're pretty safe. But I want to make sure you understand they do not save your life. They do not save your soul. And if you've never made that decision about Jesus, we want to help you with that. You know, someone came yesterday morning and made that commitment to Jesus through their baptism. We have two more who are planning to come next week. We're going to make that decision about who Jesus is in their life through their baptism. And if you want to talk about that, I'm going to be right up front after services today. I'd be glad to talk to you about that. But for those of us who have made that decision in our lives, we come together at a time like this so that we can sing to our king. We come to hear what the king would say to us through his word. And we come together for a time of communion to remember his death and burial and resurrection. And we recommit ourselves to him as our king, as we do every day. Every day is another day to resurrender to Jesus, to make sure that we know who we bow our knee to, who, who we put everything on the line for. We do that every day. But when we come together, we get to recommit to him as a body, as a community. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to walk through communion together as we recommit to him. Father, thank you for uh, being able to look at your word and understand exactly what kind of life you're calling us to, that there's, it seems like it's so easy to... Uh, admire and respect Jesus in our world today as long as we haven't surrendered to him because the moment we surrender to him we draw that line in the sand that, that means that there are some decisions that, that we really don't have an opinion upon anymore because Jesus you give us our opinion and our choice is to obey you or not our choice is to follow you or not respect and admiration it's easy to do that with you Jesus 
we do respect you, we do admire you. But more than that, we are surrendered to you. And so may our lives reflect yours in such a way that we make it easier for people to believe in you. When we say that we follow you and are surrendered to you as the king of our life, may people understand. May they see because of us that you are real. And not just that you're real, but that you love them too. So God, we recommit ourselves. We resurrender to you again today. Gratefully, gladly, wholeheartedly. Because we love you. Thank you for loving us. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So we take the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body that was given for us at the cross, that our sins would be forgiven. And we remember. his juice and this juice that reminds us of his blood that was spilt for us at the cross and it is a sign of our surrender to him and so we remember why don't you take a moment and talk to God about where you are in the process reflect the glory and the power of your kingdom the light of your presence so that those who are still walking in darkness might be drawn to you and want to follow you as well thank you for loving us we love you Jesus we pray this in your name